You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm not a believer. You know that. I don't believe in sky daddies or magic friends or haunted houses or haunted uteruses, for that matter. Don't come at me with your immaculate conceptions or your virgin births. Yeah, no. I'm a rational person. I believe in science and empiricism and double-blind studies and control groups. Basically, I believe in things that would be true whether I believed in them or not. But I pick pennies up off the sidewalk if they're face up. Face down, bad luck to pick up a penny. Face up, bad luck not to pick up a penny. I also cross myself on airplanes, takeoffs and landings, spectacles, testicles, wallet watch, spectacles, testicles, wallet watch, and I've flown on a lot of airplanes and always arrived safely at my destination. Coincidence? I don't think so. Of course, all the other people on my flight who weren't crossing themselves also arrived safely at their destinations, but only because I was there furiously crossing myself the whole time. Really, the other passengers should be thanking me and not the pilot when they get off the plane. So yeah, clearly, while I'm not a believer, I'm obviously superstitious, which is why I stopped myself, which is why I stopped myself and backed up and re-recorded the intro to this week's show after making the mistake of saying, hey, we did it, gang. We got through 2020. Happy New Year. Not only is that shit jinxy, it's not true. Not all of us made it through 2020. We lost Helen Reddy, which was sad. We lost Herman Cain, which was... We lost Herman Cain. Anyway, 2020 isn't done with us yet. That's my point. We've got three more days to get through before 2020 ends. And if we've learned anything from 2020, it's that anything can happen in 2020. Pandemics, murder hornets, super gonorrhea. But not everything that happened in 2020 was bad. We got a vaccine for a new disease in record time. Thank you, science. I also crossed myself every time I read an article about vaccine research. I really did. So thank you, Dan. We also got Tiger King and a new season of Big Mouth and large boulders that were the size of small boulders and Chromatica Oreos and health departments, big and small, endorsing glory holes. And Joe Biden won the presidential election. But the bad so far outweighed the good in 2020 that we're all understandably anxious for this year to end. But let's not jinx things. Let's not declare this thing over until this thing actually ends. We've got three more days to get through before 2020 is over, and then 19 more days to get through before Trumpy Trumpy is over. So if all goes well, and I'm crossing myself right now, we'll get through the rest of 2020 in one piece and be back at you next week with our installment of the Savage Lovecast. But I am not going to jinx things by wishing you a happy new year. Not today, not next week. Because I distinctly remember people wishing me a happy new year on December 31st, 2019. And we all know how that turned out. Okay, on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And Tim Miller, former Republican operative, joins me on the show to try and talk me out of hoping Donald Trump runs for president in 2024. We also discuss our former Twitter feud and a curse I once laid upon Tim Miller's deck. All that coming up. On today's show. Hey Dan, I'm a mid-30s guy from SF calling in with a quarantine sex success story. In the before times, my partner and I went to lots of play parties here in the Bay Area. 
We loved getting costumed up and spending the night dancing with and fucking our friends. Well, we obviously can't do that right now, so we've been having our own two-person play parties at home. We'll put on some pretty lights and loud music, dress up in sexy outfits and makeup, and spend all day getting high and fucking each other. We miss including our friends in the fun, but our two-person parties have helped keep our sex life alive during COVID. Thank you for calling in and sharing your quarantine success story. I want to reemphasize an important point we make around here, moderation in all things, including moderation. It's good to be immoderate every once in a while. So whatever drugs you and your boyfriend are enjoying together, I hope you are using, not abusing. Again, thank you for calling in and sharing. If you have a sex success story that you would like to share, we like to start each week's show with something positive, something that's working before we get to the things that aren't working before we get to everyone's problems. So give us a call, share your quarantine or just your sex success story, and we might open next week's show with it. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis straight woman uh, calling you from the toilet because I have my eighth urinary tract infection this year. If not more, I lost count. And I uh, basically have this issue oftentimes, well, basically every single time with a new partner and often other times as well. Any advice will be so appreciated. I am so over this. Yes, I pee after sex. Yes, I have medication at this point that I'm supposed to take after every time I have sex. Any uh, advice that you could give would just make me feel better. I feel for you, and I I feel terrible for you. And urinary tract infections are horrible and, and painful, but I'm just really bumping on. I am stumbling over one detail in your call, and it's making it a little hard for me and perhaps some other listeners to sympathize right now, which is that in the last year, you've had up to eight new partners. You say that this happens usually when you have a new partner or always when you have a new partner. And this has happened eight times in the last year. I hope you haven't had eight new partners in the last year during the COVID pandemic. We should be fucking the people we live with. We're bringing someone, one person, into our fuck bubble, having a fuck buddy, a sex buddy, as the Dutch call them, and not you know, having lots of new partners right now. I don't want to slut shame you. I don't want to sex shame you. Slut shaming and sex shaming is literally not what I went into this to do. I went into it to do the opposite, but I am really struggling with that detail that you tossed off there in your call. If you are drinking plenty of water, if you're drinking cranberry juice, all this according to the Mayo Clinic, wiping front to back, emptying your bladder after intercourse, which you say you're doing, you're doing everything you reasonably can. And now you're medicating yourself after every sexual encounter. You're doing everything possible to prevent these UTIs. You may have your anatomy may be such that your urethra is very short and there's a very short distance that bacteria have to travel from uh, your meatus in the opening of, I think it's a meatus also on women. That's what it's called on men. The opening of the urethra on the outside of the body to your bladder And that results in these infections. And perhaps the guys you're sleeping with have very different flora landscapes than you do. And that just makes you super duper extra susceptible. Is the sex worth it? Then you may have to live with this. I'm just spitballing here. But perhaps if the first few times you got together with a guy, you didn't do vaginal intercourse. You did other forms of intercourse and sex play and outer course Maybe that would result in you becoming acclimated to their 
biome and less likely than when you are exposed to their bacteria through vaginal intercourse. And during vaginal intercourse, uh, one person's bacteria, the male's bacteria, can really get ground into the urethra of his female partner. Maybe you'd be less likely to develop a UTI, develop that infection if you were acclimated to their flora and fauna. But again, I'm just spitballing. I wish you luck and I hope you're being safe. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old lesbian calling about my friend who is in an abusive relationship. He is a 28-year-old gay guy, um, been with his husband for three years, married for one of those years. And since the beginning of their relationship, he has been being physically abused by his then-boyfriend, now-husband. He's been choked. He's been to have the shit beat out of him. And things were good for about six months for them. And then last night after me and my friend were talking on the phone and video chatting, his husband got upset and, and choked my friend. I don't know what to do to help him. I've offered to drive down and pick him up. I've offered to let him stay at my house for as long as needed Calling the police isn't an option. They're both people of color. I don't think that would be safe. And I just don't know how to help him. I think it might be one of those things where he has to to want the help that I'm offering him. I mean, he knows that there's a, the open door that I will accept him and love him no matter what, and that he always has a safe place to contact me and to come to my house. And he acknowledges that his relationship is abusive and bad but he is staying in it. So I guess my question is, how can I help my my best friend out of a, an abusive relationship when he's unwilling to leave? Some people stay in abusive relationships because they don't have options, because they are trapped, which is why it's infuriating to hear people say to someone or say about people who've been in abusive relationships that they didn't just leave. Why didn't you just leave? People say that. Why didn't you just leave? Well, sometimes children are involved and sort of are hostages and are threatened. Sometimes a person is so economically dependent, has no family. Often an abuser cuts their victim off from all of their support systems and the victim is afraid to reach out to family members that they're estranged from, friends they haven't talked to in five or ten years. Sometimes an abuse victim is too embarrassed to reach out to a friend because they chose to stay in the relationship when it was clearly abusive and the friend attempted to intervene, encouraged them to leave, and the victim, for other reasons, stayed and became increasingly isolated and desperate. That's not the situation here with your friend. You are there. You are offering to come get him, to drive down there and rescue him from this relationship, from this marriage, and he is refusing your help. There's not a lot you can do in that situation. If he has an escape plan, if he has someone willing to create that escape plan with him and for him and facilitate it, and he refuses to avail himself of it, he is an adult. You can't drag him out of there by his ankles. You can't force him to go. So as painful as it is for you to watch these cycles of abuse repeat themselves, or that's too passive language, I think. As painful as it is for you to watch your friend be abused by his husband, who is who's doing these things, they aren't just happening, there's not a lot that you can do about it. Now, uh, on the subject of the police, yes, 
you have to be very thoughtful when you're calling the police. The police have, as we've seen again and again and again, as makes the news again and again and again, shown up, been called when there is a mental health crisis, when there's a domestic violence dispute, and instead of de-escalating, escalated the violence. And, and somebody wound up getting shot and killed. And it's usually not the cop. Somebody, black or brown, winds up getting shot or killed. So I can understand your hesitancy. But I do not think it is wise to endorse a sort of blanket policy of never ever calling the police when someone is being abused, when someone is in physical danger. Now, you probably aren't aware of the moments when your friend is being choked and, in your words, having the shit beat out of him by his husband. But perhaps the neighbors are hearing this. Perhaps other people are hearing this. And I, I think if you're overhearing that kind of abuse and violence, you may have to call the police. And we need to bear in mind that perhaps our perceptions are a bit skewed. When the police show up at a domestic violence call or a mental health crisis call and kill someone, which they shouldn't fucking do, and we should be sending out more often than not social workers, not police officers, to address a lot of these situations where police know nothing in their toolbox but violence and threat. But we hear about the cases where the police officers escalated to violence when they didn't need to when they abused their authority, when they engaged in unnecessary brutality, and almost invariably it's a brown or black person that that kind of brutality is directed at, we don't hear about the thousands of instances every day where police officers show up at a domestic violence call and don't escalate. So I, I realize my privilege here. I am a white guy. If the cops show up at my house because somebody thinks somebody's getting the shit beat out of them, I am unlikely to be killed, and that appalls me. But there are going to be cases when it comes down to call the police or do nothing and let someone die at the hands of their romantic partner. When there may be a small risk that someone might die at the hands of the police if they show up, there could be a greater risk, indeed a certainty, because abuse like this escalates over time, that that person will die at the hands of their partner. And I think in those cases, we have to use our best judgment and it may be a case where the least worst option for the victim is involving the police. You're in a better position to know if your friend is in a situation like that. My first impulse is also your first impulse. Don't call the cops. Drive down there. Pick him up. He refuses your help. He refuses to go. You're unlikely to be in a situation where you hear him having the shit beat out of him as it's happening. You probably hear about these things after the fact, which again argues against you being the one who might need to call the police. But for others out there who might be overhearing domestic violence, which often escalates to murder or murder-suicide, there may be instances, there may be cases, there may be moments when calling the police, as fraught as that feels and as fraught and dangerous as that often is, is still the right thing to do. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old woman in a relationship with a 38-year-old man. We've been together for a year, and more of our relationship has taken place in quarantine than not. We're living together at this point in order to reduce our risk of COVID. He has roommates and I don't. My partner has a messy relationship with alcohol. He drinks too much and for the wrong reasons. He's taking steps to improve his mental health, but it doesn't really seem like he wants to reduce his alcohol intake specifically. 
His issues lead to a lot of lying about minor things, making immature life choices, and making me feel that my boundaries, time, and feelings are frequently disrespected. We've had a lot of talks over the last few months about how he can show up for me as a better partner, and some things really have improved, but some things haven't, and I suspect he's just gotten better at hiding things from me. The most recent example is that he texted me that he was leaving work at 11 p.m. I woke up three hours later in a panic because he wasn't home yet. It turns out he had stayed late at work to drink with his coworker, undoubtedly not outdoors or socially distanced. He came home another hour later, drunk off his ass, meaning he also drove drunk. I've lost count of how many times this exact scenario has played out. I'm not sure how much more time I'm willing to put into this project. I grew up with alcoholic parents, so this behavior is extra triggering for me. I know that addicts just lie a lot, usually about the stupidest things. I also know that they just need tough love while they work on improving their mental health. This man is kind and gentle, he's a good communicator, and the sex is really good. I know that relationships take work, but is this the kind of work people mean when they say that? Is this a price of admission situation? I'm so sad and so sick of being disappointed in him. I just really need advice on whether I should stay and continue to work on this or leave because he's hurt me over and over again. How many chances is too many? When I talk about the price of admission, I always say that emotional or physical abuse, not a price of admission that anyone should be willing to pay to be in a relationship. Realizing that you're the one who's always going to have to do the dishes because the other person can't do them or does them badly or doesn't even see them, a price of admission you might be willing to pay. Being the one who has to look after the taxes and look after the money because the other person isn't good with money or numbers. Perhaps that's a price of admission you'd be willing to pay to be in a relationship with an otherwise lovely person. Totally smitten with someone, in love with them, into anal. They're not into anal at all. Going without anal, perhaps a price of admission you would be willing to pay to be in that relationship. Putting up with alcoholism, particularly with your family history, his alcoholism over the last year, these incidents of him drinking to excess and lying to you, I think that falls under the category of a kind of emotional abuse. And it's too great, too steep a price of admission for you to pay. You've given him a chance. You've put some work and effort into this relationship because he's kind and gentle and the sex is really good. And perhaps working on it was the price of admission that you were willing to pay over the last year. But what you've realized now or what's evident now after the work that you've done is it's not helping. Nothing is going to change. He hasn't changed. He is choosing alcohol over you and doing things like driving home drunk in the middle of the night, like having drinks with coworkers in a non-socially distanced environment after work that's putting himself at risk, putting you at risk, putting strangers on the street in the middle of the night at risk. All prices of admission that you should not be willing to pay. He may come around. He may get better. Usually with an addict, alcoholics, a lot of alcoholics in my family, they have to hit bottom. And one of the ways they hit bottom is losing girlfriends who were trying to help them, whose help that they were not accepting. So paradoxically, sometimes the most helpful thing you can do for an addict in a situation like this is chuck them out of your apartment, chuck them out of your life, break up with them. So they see that they're not getting away with these lies and the alcohol is really costing them. 
You say that he has roommates. He has a place to go. Him being in your space right now in the condition that he's in is putting you at risk, not just for his alcoholic bullshit and the lies and the drunk driving, but for coronavirus, for COVID-19. Also a price of admission you should not be willing to pay at this stage of the pandemic. End this relationship. You gave it a year. You really made your best effort. You took your shot. It didn't change him. He has to change himself. You can't force this change. And your presence in his life is obviously not motivating him to make this change. Perhaps your absence from his life will motivate him to make the changes he needs to make. Hey, Dan, I'm a big guy. Been getting in shape and feeling pretty happy with that, but still have the persistent phenomenon known as the FUPA, the fat upper pubic area, which, you know, it kind of gets in the way with sex. I can definitely use my hand to lift and take care of that and, you know, free things up a little bit. But I'm just wondering if you know of any company that makes some clothing that would help with that. I'm thinking of something like, you know, bike shorts, compression shorts with a hole cut in it. And I think probably there are some women out there that would enjoy something similar that would work with the way that they're built. Something that just kind of lifts that area up and opens it up. So if you know of anything, love to hear about it. Cutting a hole in some bike shorts is a great idea. Some compression shorts for the gym, cutting a hole. That'll work. If you want to go the fetish wear routes, Lycra, neoprene in particular, rubber, there's a lot of fetish companies out there. You can start at Mr. S. That's the one I always recommend that sell basically fetish gear that isn't designed to hold up the fupa or obscure it, but can have that effect. Fetish wear might be, you know, kind of the original Spanks, at least the neoprene, at least the lycra, at least the rubber. And there's a lot of crotchless stuff out there that's on the market that's being sold. It's going to be more expensive. You will pay what I call the kink tax. If you want to DIY it, yeah, compression shorts or Lycra, tight Lycra reinforced bike shorts that you cut uh, or a bike singlet that you cut a hole in for your dick. Yeah, that'll work. That'll totally do the trick. But if you want to go a bit more fetishy, if you want it to look a little less DIY, check out the gear for sale at the fetish shops for gay men. Hi, Dan. About a year ago, I got a divorce and then my high school boyfriend contacted me. We fell in love and we are now doing long distance. And I love him. I love him. I love him. I love him. And there's no question about our relationship, but I'm a teacher and everything is shut down. And I am wondering if Dan, do you think I should risk everything and move out there to be with him. We're not going to live together. I might not even live within, I might have to live an hour, half an hour, 45 minutes away from him in order to get a teaching job, but I might not be able to get a teaching job. I might have to work at a grocery store or bank or something. And I want to know, do I give up my current safe job for love? I love him. And the idea of this current school year ending and me spending another year away from him. It breaks my heart. So do I do that or do I go for safety? Do I go for monetary safety or do I go for love? Oh, I love love. You sound so in love. And I really want to tell you to go for it, to 
move closer to him to, to get where you can be with this person who makes you feel this way as often as possible, as much as possible. But there are risks. You could move halfway across the country to be with this person. You could walk away from a, a stable, well-paying job that you like and, and are happy with and things could end up not working out with this guy as in love with him as you are right now. There's always a chance that things might not work out and then you will be stranded somewhere, perhaps working in a grocery store with some other job that you don't like as much, that doesn't provide you with as much financial security, living with regret. But if you stay put, if you don't move, you will be living with regret where you're at right now. So there's either the certain regret of not moving to be closer to this guy or the possibility of regret if you do move to be closer to this guy. And I think given a choice between certain regret and possible regret, that possible regret is the rational choice. But I think you're also creating a bit of a false choice for yourself. There's being with him or being where you are. You can, as so many people do, as I have done, the long-distance relationship thing. Not eternally. You can give it another year. You can go to see him as often as possible. You can have him come to see you. You can spend as much time together as possible. Hopefully once everyone is vaccinated, that will be a lot of time without having to quit your job and without having to move. And then if in a year you still feel this way about him, if in two years you still feel this strongly about taking the risk of moving to be closer to him because apparently he can't move to be closer to you for some reason. Maybe that's also a possibility that you two could discuss in the year or two that you do the long distance thing. Then you can make this decision. So the choice then isn't to end the relationship or move and be with this guy that you love. The choice can be not to move and be with this guy that you love and to continue then to see where this relationship goes. And maybe you'll get to a point where the choice will be between the certain regret of staying put, of continuing to do the long distance thing, and the much diminished possibility of regret if you move. Because you'll know with a greater degree of certainty that the chances of possible regrets are much, much smaller. Hi, Dan. 35-year-old woman calling from the Midwest. Have a question about kids. Me and my husband have decided not to have children. We have no ambition to, etc. Why do I feel defensive when coworkers or customers at my store question me about why I don't want to have kids? I've gotten to the age now where I have to start saying, well, now I'm too old to have kids, instead of saying, I don't want kids. Well, why don't you want kids? Well, because I don't want to. So how do I say that nicely without the resentment coming out? And why do people feel the need to shame me about it? I secretly hope that some of the people who ask you why you don't want kids would like you to articulate your reasons because they don't want kids and they need help making the argument to the people that ask them this rude and impertinent question. Or maybe they just want to be talked out of having the kids that they've been led to believe that they're required to have and meeting somebody, particularly in the Midwest, maybe in the circles you move in or the places where you work, is rare and they're excited to meet somebody who doesn't want kids. That's not usually the case, though, when rude and inconsiderate people ask this question, press this case, 
usually they're shaming you, as you rightly do feel shamed by them, because that's what they are attempting to do, for making a different choice, for not wanting the things in life that they want, the things in life that they have been told they must want, they've been assigned to want. And then they meet somebody who doesn't want those things, is making a different choice, and they feel threatened, and they lash out, and it is pathological. And I don't think you should worry about being nice to people who are trying to shame you or people who are asking rude and intrusive and invasive questions, people who are really invading your privacy in this way. You could, for all they know, have desperately wanted children and been unable to get pregnant or had an adoption fall through or had several adoptions fall through. And this could be a very painful subject for you for all they know, which is why people are told again and again and again by advice professionals not to ask this fucking question when you meet people who don't have kids or when you find out someone has decided or a couple has decided not to have kids. You don't get to demand their reasons so, yeah, don't worry about being nice. Shut these conversations down if you don't want to have them. And it doesn't sound like you do want to have them. That's a private matter. I don't want to discuss it because I don't. Why would you ask me that question? Just narrow your eyes. Why would you think to ask me that question? Or why would you think that this is something that I would discuss with a stranger? You say that customers ask you this question. Shut it down. Maybe you're in a position where you have to be nice and polite to your customers and you have to kind of laugh it off, but not with your coworkers. And if your coworkers keep it up and the business you work at is large enough that you have an HR, go complain to HR about what your coworkers are doing to you, putting you through, about the rude personal questions that they are asking you. And then if you can't shut it down nicely or not nicely, maybe HR can shut it down for you. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a 30-something cis pan woman. I'm calling for a question about attachment theory and falling in love during the time of coronavirus. For context, my partner and I met online in April, and we chatted online, then we video chatted, um, and then when it was safe, we met in person and had a distance date, and we've been together now for eight months, and it's really amazing. I can't imagine how I would have gotten through the last eight months without him. And the communication is unbelievable. It's really very honest. And the sex is really good too. I'm having really the time of my life, which seems odd during a pandemic. And I guess my concern is that when the world opens up again, how will this affect our relationship? I mean, we've never been to a restaurant or a bar together. We've never been to a party together. I've seen, we've seen each other's friends kind of a little bit over the summer, but not anymore. And so, yeah, when we hang out, it's very him and I and in our own little world. And it's wonderful, but it won't be like that forever. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of attachment theory about that kind of thing. Attachment theory, as I understand it, is about a child. It's about a child having a loving caregiver that they feel safe with, who tends to their needs. And it, that early relationship in infancy and toddlerhood makes it possible for someone to form healthy relationships later in life. You don't usually hear about attachment theory in reference to adult romantic relationships entered into when everyone is fully grown. I don't think it's really, you know, the ability to attach that's a question here. You guys have made an attachment. I think you're worried about 
a stress test. Now, for a lot of people's relationships, the pandemic was the stress test. A lot of people's relationships collapsed under the weight of the stress of the pandemic of being confined, you know, locked up inside with just your romantic partner or just your spouse, or just your boyfriend, just your girlfriend, just your envy friend, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A lot of relationships weren't built for that kind of closeness. And I think some people are out there ending relationships that perhaps they shouldn't end or making plans to end relationships that they shouldn't end because their relationship didn't work under the stress of the pandemic. Well, the pandemic is going to come to an end and then the other things that were a part of your life that made your relationship work, having other friends, getting to other places, getting to go to work, those things are going to come back. And if the relationship was loving and fulfilling under those conditions, I don't necessarily think you should end it because of pandemic conditions that are hopefully temporary and that we won't see again in our lifetimes. You're facing a very different kind of stress test. You're anticipating that stress test and you're stressing out about it. And that stress is about getting out from under the pandemic conditions, you know, no longer being confined basically with just your relatively new romantic partner, moving through the world as a couple, encountering others as a couple. On the one hand, it seems to me that you are fantasizing about problems. It doesn't sound like you have any problems in this relationship. And so you are sitting around making one up. On the other hand, if when you can finally go to a restaurant with this guy, you discover that he is rude to waiters and bartenders and doesn't tip, well, for me, being rude to waiters is kind of a deal breaker. Putting up with that, having to witness that as somebody who put himself through college waiting tables is not a price of admission that I've ever been willing to pay to be in relationship with someone. And it has always been borne out that someone who is rude to waiters, in my experience, also eventually, when you pass through the honeymoon phase, is rude to lovers as well. So there are some things you're going to learn about your partner, and I don't want to minimize the importance of them when you get out of the house together, when you get to go to parties together, when you get to hang out with friends, socialize, dinner parties, when you're moving through the world together as a couple and spending, because he'll go to his place of employment, you'll go to your place of employment, you'll go see some friends on your own, he'll go see some friends on his own. When you're moving through the world separately and then coming back together, and that's going to be a little different. Will it be a problem? It might. It might not. There's only one way to find out, which is to wait for the pandemic to go away and then see what he's like out there in the world. I think considering how much else is going right in this relationship, odds are that when you do get out there in the world with this guy, it's going to continue to go right. He's going to continue to prove to you that he is the good and loving and awesome person that he's proven himself to be while he's been locked up with you and just you. So, I think some of the stress you might be feeling about what's it going to be like when the pandemic is lifted is real, but I think you need to keep it in perspective. Considering all the things you know about this guy now, I think it's unlikely he's going to be shitty to waiters. But hey, if he is shitty to waiters, once you go to restaurants together, dump that motherfucker. It's not every day that we have a former spokesman for the Republican National Committee here on my dirty little sex podcast. But joining us today, Tim Miller, writer at large for The Bulwark, political director for Republican Voters Against Trump and communications director for Jeb Bush in 2016, which is how we originally got to be friendly. Hey, Tim, (laughs) how are you? 
Hey, Dan. Uh, when I sent my bio to Nancy on email, I could just feel the shudder uh, <laughs> through the email as she was as she replied to the bio. Oh, really? So um, how does a nice long-haired gay boy like you get mixed up in Republican politics at the highest level? Oh, man, where do we start? Um, uh, you know, I guess uh, my childhood, uh, believing uh, believing the pull me up by my bootstraps BS, probably. Mm-hmm. My dad was a bootstraps guy um, and, uh, and, and achieved success. So I don't know. I was a political dork as a kid, you know, Dan. And I got, I, I, I got into politics. I wrote about this um, uh, when I, I've left the Republican Party now, and I, I wrote uh, an article called Goodbye to All That a while ago. And, and, I, and in the article, I said, I honestly don't remember. I can remember being an eighth grader, reading the little scholastic kids' political news and like really liking it. And for some reason, I was drawn to Bob Dole. Who the hell knows? Bob Dole? Bob Dole, I know. Can you believe that? I was expecting Ronald Reagan to leap out of your mouth. I'm not that old. Um, (laughs) uh, So, you know, I I was inspired by the patriotism, by, you know, uh, his service, for this idea that, like, America was exceptional, that, that, that we wanted the blessings of America to be granted to everybody throughout the world, you know, the sort of the neocon stuff. And and I got into politics. And I'm going to be honest, once I got in, uh, you know, it's like a lot of stuff in life. It kind of becomes, there's a little bit of, it became a little bit of a game, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I like the game, I like the sport of it, like winning, beating the other guy um, as much as the details. Uh, inertia, you know, I, I kept, I was good at it, right? So I kept getting promoted and new jobs and stuff like this. And, um, you know, the other thing is I, I did feel, um, I, I compartmentalized a lot of the bad stuff of the party, which is why when you would dunk on me on Twitter, it would make me feel bad because it would take me out of my compartmentalization of my life. But I compartmentalized a lot of the bad stuff because I was like, I was one of the good guys. I worked for McCain and John Huntsman and Romney. And like, I was a lot of times in a primary fighting against these crazy anti-immigrant nuts, you know? And I saw, I, I, I kind of convinced myself that I was... Um, you know, doing a net positive, being, you know, one of the good ones on the inside. And, and that's kind of a good life lesson for your younger listeners. If you're convincing <laughs> yourself you're one of the good guys, then that they're pro- you're probably wrapped up in some bad shit. And we did used to go at each other on Twitter a little bit, particularly uh, in 2016 when you were working for Jeb Bush. And even for me, setting aside, you know, the Southern strategy, Nixon, the anti-gay shit and all the Republican Party platforms going back for as long as openly gay people have been openly gay. What I really couldn't understand is how you as a gay man wanted to elect another Bush after the first one brought us Pat Buchanan's culture war speech, the family values forever, gay rights, never Republican national convention in 92. The second Bush brought us anti-gay marriage referenda in swing states all over the country and endorsed an anti-gay marriage uh, amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and to see like a gay guy who I could tell was smart, whose writing I really liked when I would read your even your political operative stuff, working to elect another Bush after all the damage Bush had do- the Bushes had done just to us faggots. I couldn't understand it. How did you process that? I'm going to answer that, but just before, I just want for the listeners, I did go back and try to find some of your tweets that you sent to me. And so here, here, here's one of them. Uh, I'm not naive. At TMODC can probably find some POS to suck his cock. But in a perfect world, no one would fuck a gay dude working to elect Jeb Bush. <laughs> um, 
That's pretty funny, actually. Um, uh, you know, uh, it didn't. You, your wish was not granted. Um, uh, but, <laughs> I'm glad uh, to hear that. I'm um, happy to hear that. But, but uh, the, to answer your question, um, you know, look, I, I, two things. One is, I, you know, Jeb is not a perfect guy. Nobody's perfect, right? I, but I just want to say this to start. I, I love Jeb Bush, and I worked for a lot of people. I worked for bad people, good people, and Jeb had a very, very bad and embarrassing, frankly, loss. And, and handled it better than any candidate I've ever been with when they lost. He took all the blame on himself. He, he, he was nothing but gracious to the people that worked for him. His heart is in the right place. He made some bad. You know, we disagree on, that, on certain things politically, of course. So I will not say anything bad about Jeb. I, when I met him, he, he had a clear view for what he you know, wanted for the country. And, and going back to the compartmentalization thing, I, I had convinced myself that the gay stuff was kind of over. And this was this is wrong, by the way. So I'm, I'm just trying to get you into my mindset. But like, mm-hmm. we won, right? I mean, in 2008, I worked for McCain, right? And my how I convinced myself then was like, McCain and Obama are both against gay marriage. What's the difference, right? Like, it's kind of same, same, you know? And that was bullshit, but that was how I convinced myself. And then, you know, in 2012, I was at the RNC, and I actually left because I didn't, I told the chairman at the time, Reince Priebus, who went on to work for Donald Trump, which we could talk about if you want. Um, <laughs> I told him that I didn't want to stay anymore because I didn't want to be a spokesperson when the Supreme Court ruled. Like, I just, I didn't want to feel at all conflicted. And he tried to make the argument at the time that it'd be good to have me and it like, might help soften the party's image and it might help with make the, make the statements better. But I was like, eh, I, I felt bad. But then once that happened and I went back in with Jeb, I kind of felt like, I don't know. This is a guy who doesn't care that I'm gay. His heart's in the right place. Like on balance, like, you know, he's certainly better than Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and Scott Walker, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is a guy that I can, I can feel proud to work for. And I, and I did feel proud to work for him while at the same time acknowledging that, that, you know, the gay stuff wasn't really quite as over as I, as I wanted to believe. It's interesting what you share about what Rince Prieber said to you about how it would be good for the optics to have a gay guy out there. It's sort of like how it was good for the optics to have Michael Steele out there, that the Republican Party has always manipulated, used, and weaponized the presence of some African-Americans, some gay people. Sorry, not to appeal to most gay people or most African-Americans who see through it, but to appeal to white people who say, well, the party's not racist. Look, there's Michael Steele. The party's not homophobic. You know, look, there's Tim Miller reading that statement out. So I can vote for this party without feeling like I'm betraying my gay friends, my gay kids, or I can vote for this party without feeling like I'm a racist because, look, there's Michael Steele. And if I, as, you know, a gay guy outside of all of that machinery, could see how people like you were being used, it's good to know that in the end, you saw how you were being used. How did you not see it at the outset? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd be a good question for Michael because he's traveled the same sort of path as me, right? I mean, Michael mm-hmm. Steele's now an anti-Trump. Uh, uh, I don't know if he's left the party like I did, but but basically has um, for all for all intents and purposes. You know, if he were to run again now, he'd have much better chances as a Democrat. I wrote about these kind of us former Never Trumpers now being kind of red dog Democrats for the bulwark this week, and. I, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that what he would say, what I would say is this, that like, that that there's this tension within you, right? Which is, there were parts of this that I did still genuinely agree with, right? And and uh, we, can, I can, we can argue about some of this stuff still. I'm sure we have genuine, uh, you know, deeply held 
uh, disagreements on, you know, late term abortion and size of government and capital you know, gains certain taxes. regulations. I don't give a fuck about capital gains taxes anymore. <laughs> we have like an authoritarian, want to be authoritarian running the government, but like, sure. Uh, but lower, sir, earn in, you know, learn, earned income tax credit. There's certain things, certain business regulations that, that, that we would disagree on. And then I think people like me and Michael said to ourselves, okay, well, we can be a force for good in this way, right? And pushing the party towards, you know, towards more moderate social views while being true to our values on fiscal and, and certain international policies, right? And that is how you convince yourself that, that it's the right thing to do, right? Where then when it's put to you as directly as it was put to by rights to me, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, you have these moments where you get woken up to it. Right. And I was w- awoken by that exchange with rights. I was obviously awoken by Donald Trump winning the Republican part primary in a major way. And, and, you know, I, I don't look, I, I throw myself on the mercy of the court on that stuff. I, I also say just really quick, if you go back to McCain and, and I think this is an important thing to look at both, both of these things were true. I was wrong to not see a lot of the nefarious elements within the Republican party, but also John McCain ran for president on Ted Kennedy's immigration policy. He believed in climate change. He believed in cap and trade. He ran against the Bush torture regime. He ran against the Bush tax, right? I mean, John, like, he like, picked like, Sarah he, Palin. He picked Sarah Palin, right? And that, and and this is now. This takes us well, to my uh, real actually, mistake. No, no, no. This takes us to my real life mistake. We can get just perfect. Uh, I really want to jump like, in here though, because I, I didn't invite you on to have a struggle session or to rake you over the coals. No, let's struggle about your long association. I actually wanted you to do an intervention for me <laughs> about some things that I've been struggling with and I've been feeling in the wake of this. Um, and I got to say, uh, I've been you know listening to the Bulwark podcast. I've been reading your stuff at the Bulwark. Initially, when I came in, it was the schadenfreude <laughs> of listening to the Republicans who come Just on. Whipping themselves over yeah, the back constantly. Come on the Bulwark and have had their eyes opened. Uh, but I've stuck around because it's really smart and there are a lot of interesting people. And I find your contributions particularly compelling and I, and I'm enjoying them. And so this is why I wanted to have you on because I feel like you are the right person to, you know, I tried to intervene, you know, back in the day by sending really mean t- tweets to you. <laughs> and now I need you to intervene by coming on my, my podcast. I want Trump to run again. No, if we have to live with Trumpism and we're going to have to, I feel like we should have to live with Trump. And I don't mean us. I don't mean we should have to live with Trump. The whole world should be spared this asshole. You know, I, I, I want him and his whole family to, to go away forever. But if we have to live with him, if we're not going to be spared, I don't think Cruz, Rubio, McConnell, Cotton, Nikki fucking Haley should be spared. I like the fact that all of these Republicans like Rubio, like Cruz, who spent the last four years on their knees with their tongues in his ass are not going to be able to withdraw their tongues and get up off their knees. They're going to have to keep eating fucking Trump ass for four more years, maybe five if he runs again. I don't think he'd win if he ran again. But like, I'm kind of enjoying seeing Cruz and Rubio tortured like this is that a problem and should I be hoping Trump goes away? Yes, yes you're, you're making a massive mistake. <laughs> and, and I appreciate the schadenfreude. And, and look, nobody, um, if it wasn't so scary, I, this is what it comes down to. If, if this interregnum period between Trump's loss um, at the hand of Joe Biden, which I was happy to participate in, and, and his leaving was not so scary, it would be really enjoyable in the schadenfreude way. I mean, just watching like, 
these guys just debase and embarrass themselves and like run circles around having to, to admit that Donald Trump lost. And like the fact that he keeps having to lose over and over again in the courts <laughs> and in Georgia. I mean, like if it wasn't for the bad stuff happening, I feel like we could really kind of enjoy this and like bathe in it. But like we can't because he's so dangerous. And, and so you're sick of winning right now is what you're saying. I'm a little sick. Yeah. I've gotten sick of winning and, and I'm ready for him to just go away. And, and, and while sure, Letting him go on TV and make life miserable for all these Republicans who want to go back and pretend like things are normal and pretend like Donald Trump hasn't changed things permanently and pretend and go back to the before times where they, you know, kind of do the dog whistling in, in, in actual dog whistle tones rather than in like, uh, you know, foghorn tones. And have wanted um, to run for president themselves and yeah. sort of inherit Trump supporters by being big Trump supporters themselves. You know, Cruz has been eating the corn out of Trump's shit for five years. And he thought the reward would be he could run for president and have Trump's backing if Trump lost, pick up Trump's base. And that's just not going to fucking happen. Trump is not going to give that to him. Yeah, but here's the problem. That is right. You're right. And so enjoying that people's pain, I fully I allow everybody to do that. If that gets you off, like you just enjoy <laughs> Ted Cruz's pain and, and I will not tell you anything otherwise. Here's the problem, though. Is it like Donald Trump, well, he got beaten decisively, schlonged in his terms in the popular vote. I, the Electoral College was decently close. Like the yep. tipping point state Wisconsin was only 20,000 votes. All right. And so, you know, who the hell knows what happens in four years? And like if Donald Trump wins again, he will be a prohibitive favorite in the Republican primary. Almost certainly would win again if you were to run again, even if anybody gave a big challenge, you know, of him. And, and who, you know, who the hell knows what happens in a general election? Is Joe Biden going to run again in four years? When, you know, You know, who knows what his... Now, acuity is going to be at that time. It's Kamala Harris. Now you now he now he gets the benefit of of those dog whistles running against a woman, running against a black woman, and could he squeeze out an extra twenty thousand votes? Do people forget how bad things were four years from now with you know uh, the media and Fox and everybody shining Trump's turds from the past four years, and mm-hmm. like, you don't have them in your face every day? I, I just he's too dangerous. And, and and I think that we got really lucky. We caught, I mean, we got really unlucky with the coronavirus, but we caught a couple of breaks. You know, Michael Flynn, like this insane person that's calling for a coup right now, a military coup, Michael Flynn, he was the national security advisor. And the calls are coming from inside the White House. Yes. Flynn is in the White House making this case to the president. No, I get how dangerous this moment is. I want him to go the fuck away. Like, root for him to go to jail. Root for him to... Well, I've always God been on thoughts and prayers, have a heart attack. But like, I mean, I was just going to say, just, I've always been on team cholesterol myself the last five years. <laughs> yeah, but I but I don't know. Rooting for him to run again, rooting for him to be a shadow over the Republican Party after he after he leaves for a year or two and dumping on people from Mar-a-Lago and his new cable network. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you enjoy that for a year or two. But God, we don't want him to run again. I, I want to emphasize we, something we you said there. He came, you know, one, one of the things we talked about in 2016 was that if 80,000 votes had shifted in three states, Hillary would have won. She won the popular vote. She would have won the Electoral College. I've seen the analysis now that if 65,000 votes had shifted toward Trump in this election, he would have won the Electoral College and still lost the election by more than 7 million votes, still lost the popular vote. We have got to get rid of the fucking Electoral College. Yeah, and I, this is so. I, I uh, this is what I what I call this was, and I didn't coin this obviously, but I wrote an article about the tyranny of the minority. And and here's the thing about what is what is this is our future. And so yeah, it's it's we can talk about you know what's right and what's wrong and how to change it. But the reality is, the electoral college isn't going anywhere. And and so here's what we have in front of us: the Republican Party has made a bet. 
And that is why they're sticking with Trump. That's why there's no autopsy. I mean, when I was there with Ryan in 2012, after we lost, mm-hmm. we did this big autopsy, which is like, we should be nicer to women and we should be nicer to immigrants. And Donald Trump is like, I'm going to use this for toilet paper and like flush <laughs> it down the drain and say, no, bullshit. What we need to do is double down on white grievance and double down on, you know, anti, anti-elite, anti-coastal, anti-Dan Savage, anti-Don Lemon. You know, that was going to be the strategy. And, and Trump was right by, you know, 70,000 votes. You know, he ended up getting less votes than Romney, but it worked. The Electoral College strategy worked. And so now all these Republicans see that. They're not even trying to become a majority party again. There's no, there's no autopsy. There's nobody in that building in the RNC saying, we need to be nicer to immigrants. We need to soften our tone. We need to do this. We need to, you know, pass the Violence Against Women's Act. None of that. What they want to do is double down on the populism, on the, on the anti-science, on the anti-elite, anti-Hollywood, anti-big tech, and win a narrow electoral college victory in 2024, 2028, while losing the popular vote by even more than Hillary lost it by. That's, that's scary shit, man. And, and that, this is something that, that I've been awakened to that really worries me. If, if you're somebody younger than me, you know, if you're in your 20s, you haven't actually seen a Republican win the majority of the like, like Bush in 04 was the last time. Right. So like if this is your if this is your first vote, Republicans had lost the last seven of the last eight. But but, but our system's rigged against, you know, the, the Senate has a minority is, is ruled by the minority. Yeah. Uh, Dems have to win overwhelmingly. Um, so this is what and, radicalizes people. I get that. And it's a it is a problem. And if we have minority rule, that can only go on so long, right. as we've seen again and again and again in countries all over the world. Recently, South Africa, or in my lifetime, South Africa, we saw how that ended peacefully, but minority rule ultimately had to go, and we can't have it here. Hungary right now, like oh my God. I mean, you know, oh. Orban right now is it has a minority government that he's running like an autocrat, and you know, uh, that taking away free speech rights, jailing gays, jailing dissidents, and right now to beat him, they're trying to. It's the socialists that are uniting with you know, kind of the center right and everybody who's anti, you know, autocrat, all of these part, various parties are uniting. This is, and this is my, you know, pitch as a former never Trumper who many of your listeners probably hate and, you know, think I'm, you know, I think I should never fuck anybody again like you did. <laughs> it's like, honestly, this like, like the left and right disagreements are, are important. I don't want to minimize them. But, but, the, but the big threat that this country faces right now is the threat between anti-democratic forces and pro-democratic forces and all of the pro-democratic forces need to unite against the anti-democratic forces in a coalition of convenience until we're, until we're through this. And they are doubling down on this, both through the Senate and the Electoral College, but now through this election and, and telling, and, and you know that in red states, they're going to get rid of mail-in balloting after this. It's all, you know, all, all this voter fraud nonsense, like they're combined. That, we that do. is uh, the fight. Right I, now. I completely agree with you that the, the left needs to unite with the center-right pro-democratic forces against totalitarianism, authoritarianism. Unfortunately, we live at a time where the left is playing a particularly reductionist game of purity politics. And I'm not sure the left in the United States can unite. The left can't unite with the fucking left. The idea of the left united with the center right is necessary. Pete Buttigieg as I- is me, basically. If you're on Twitter, like me and Pete Buttigieg are just not, are just not you, you'd think we are the same. Like we're just evil corporatist centrists. Or, there you know, there is so much unexamined homophobia funneled into Pete Buttigieg hatred online that 
makes me nuts. Um, I wanted actually to throw some, you only agreed to come on my dirty sex podcast. Did, okay, before to- we do this, can we just do the Palin thing really quick? Cause I need to come clean on something. If we're, I'm going to do a dirty sex podcast, I want to come clean on something and do therapy for a second. Okay. So I just do want to tell you something. So in, you mentioned Palin as, as the rebuttal to my McCain defense, which is obviously fair. And I'm not an idiot. So I saw that at the time, obviously. I, I took a break from the Republican Party right after that campaign, came out of the closet, was a religious reader of the Savage Love newsletter, um, took tons of advice from you as to how to be a gay man uh, in the world, and, and knew it and saw that Palin was the animating force in the party. And I should have just quit then. And, you know, this is something for me and my therapist to discuss, but I'm going to do it here as well. And I know it in retrospect. But I got sucked back in by John Huntsman, uh, you know, because I thought he was one of the good ones. And then slowly, 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 you start to start to get you rise up the ranks. And so anyway, that's my life advice for people. When you can sniff it and you know it, uh, like I should have, I probably should have known in, you know, 1996 that Bob Dole wasn't my type of guy. But like real, I really knew it in 2008 when I was reading Savage Love and Sarah Palin was on the fucking ticket. And uh, and so anyway, uh, I, I should have listened to you then. And so that is this is my therapy. Identity is strong. The tribalism in politics is strong. Family ties, and it's not a genetic thing. Of career, comp, competitiveness. Walking away from a, a, a political identification is as hard as like deciding you're not Catholic, which was hard for me, but I yeah. did it. Or you know, walking away from anything that your family is really attached to and really. Uh, drummed into you. I'm happy about who you are now. I hope you get your dick sucked Thank you. all the time. I even <laughs> hope you're getting your dick sucked then. But uh, one last question about the politics before we like throw a couple of dirty savage love questions your way. Okay, great. You used to be a Republican operative, the yeah. highest level, uh, a rat fucker, as we Dems call him. Now you're yeah. the toast of liberal media. You're on Mar, you're <laughs> on MSNBC. You're great when you're on television. Republican operative or toast of liberal media, which pays better? Oh, man. Well, I haven't maximized my toast of liberal media um, financial ties yet. So we'll, we'll see. But um, Republican, I mean, honestly, my financial state would have been much better had I stayed. I mean, you know, the guys that are doing ads that are making ads for Republican campaigns are cashing in big. And I got in trouble. Another credit, another credit to your character that you walked away. I, think I get better attention and I get to be on cooler podcasts. Like I get to be on Savage Love instead of saying, hey, mom, I'm going to be on the Breitbart podcast today. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, on the pay side, I do it like one of my one of the guys I worked with uh, was running Trump Super PAC. And I know he knows better. And, and I know that this whole, the firm knows better. And I, and, I, and I went at him on a different podcast. I was just like, I, I was like, this is crazy. These guys are building beach houses in Delaware, not in Rehoboth. They're, they're straight, so down in Bethany. Um, they're building <laughs> their Bethany beach houses on the back of this. And, I, you know, Sheldon Adelson put $70 million into the Trump super PAC. So, like, this is really, really happening now. And so while I don't want any credit or toast or kudos because like opposing donald trump was the easiest fucking thing i ever did in my life it was the most obvious thing that i ever did in my life and i think it's like silly to say oh yeah good for you you saw that donald trump was bad like it's like the <laughs> lowest bar in the world but but it, it but the reason why like the people want to, to give credit um which i which i'm grateful for is that like so like pretty much everybody did it 
like, like you know what I mean? Like you, you, mm-hmm. people who watch MSNBC like know like Steve Schmidt. Like they, the reason why they know the eight of us is because there are eight, right? <laughs> like there's like nine hundred and uh, you know eighty of them that like went along with it, and and so you know none of us you know you don't need to like play a violin for me. We're all doing fine financially, but those guys with the Sheldon money are raking it in. All right, Tim Miller, do you want to answer a couple of sex questions Let's with me? Do it. That's the only reason I agreed to this. Hey, Dan. So my current situation is I have worked in restaurants for like the past like four or five years. I'm 21 years old. So I've been working it for like most of my working life. Right now, my restaurant that I'm working at currently is closing. We have like one shift a week now. I can't really like pay my rent, my bills, my phone bill. It's really becoming a lot. So I had a sugar daddy in college like a couple years ago and it was fine. It was whatever. Like, I don't really care. I'm not really judgmental about like older men or like body types, anything like that, especially when they're giving me money. But right now, currently, I just don't know whether or not that's a good option. Like, I know I'm putting myself at risk for COVID, but at the same time, like, I've been applying to jobs for the past four weeks to like no avail. Like it's never been this hard for me to get like a different job before. Is this bad? Like, I mean, I feel so horrible, but I mean, if I took the proper precautions or like whatever, I mean, it's better than me getting kicked out of my apartment, right? Like any advice on like what I could do for money? I'm very open for sex work, anything. Yeah. Just uh, please help me. (laughs) Um, I'm desperate. So $600, that's not going to, Pay this dude's rent. No, 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 it's not. I, this is, uh, you're like, I, I think you picked this one to make me feel bad about capitalism. I don't know. Um, I don't, like, my first instinct here is to just. I, I actually, I did, wait, I didn't pick this one to make you feel bad. I'm, I'm making you feel bad. There's just a couple of questions I'm tossing your way. These were in the hamper. I, I don't have to psycho, I don't have to psychoanalyze the question choices. Um, so look, I, I like firstly, just with my political add-on, really quick. Like we have really let this guy down, and people like this guy down. And there's absolutely no reason why people in the restaurant and music industry and other industries such as this shouldn't have been, uh, you know, bailed out and 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 that their salaries paid throughout the year. I mean, this is even fiscal conservatives should believe this. Like this is the point of being a fiscal conservative. So you can pay when freaking 100 every once in a hundred year pandemics happen and you got to shut down music venues and restaurants. So. And this is what we've seen in other large, wealthy industrialized nations where they're paying people $2,000 a month, $1,800 a month to stay home here. We're saying stay home and we're not going to give you any money or any help really right. And that ups your chances of losing your home, but please stay in the home that you've just lost because yeah, you're you not getting the kind of financial support. Do- yeah, and then you got to go up and do risky stuff like this guy is saying. So I, I totally get his uh, his plight. And my second instinct is to just say that like I, I don't, I'm not in the market for a sugar baby or whatever, you, whatever you call it, a kept boy. But like, <laughs> like I feel horrible. So like DM me or email Dan or whatever. I'm gonna like Venmo you dinner. I promise. Like I swear that this is grocery money or whatever because this is horrible. As far as like the choices in front of you, there's nothing wrong with having a sugar daddy, right? Like as long as everybody is worked honest, out for Melania. <laughs> too well as long as everybody's honest about the situation and you know nobody's been being made to feel bad or being made to be demeaned like you know i think that that's a decent option particularly in covid with 
you're only dealing with one person instead of whereas like sex work, like obviously is going to be much more risky and you're going to, have to take much more precautions and other things like that. So I, you know, I've had friends who, you know, slept with sugar daddies just for a dinner. So the, the, the job he's losing restaurant work, that's perhaps riskier than having one sugar daddy who sometimes drop by your house. So, you know, but this question does highlight something that we talk about a lot. You know, you'd never want to see people doing sex work for the wrong reasons. And economic duress is not a great reason to do sex work, but it is the reason that a lot of people do sex work. And if people who oppose sex work on principle really oppose sex work on principle, and I'm talking about conservatives here particularly, but also lefty people who oppose sex work on principle, you have to support universal basic income. You have to support socialized medicine. You have to support a social safety net so that no one is ever so econo- in such an economically precarious position that they wind up making the choice that, that this guy is about to make, which, you know, in your case, caller, you've done this before, you weren't traumatized by it, you, you're not grossed out by, you know, older men or different body types. So being in bed with somebody that you didn't choose for physical reasons, but who chose you for financial reasons, not going to traumatize you seems like a reasonable, rational choice. But, uh, but you are, you know, he is choosing to do sex work because he has no other choice. If you never want someone to do sex work under duress, make sure that no one's ever in the position where it's their only choice. I I, I couldn't agree with that more. And so, you know, I, I, I just think that um, in this situation, like, it really sucks that he's in it. I wish that I could be helpful. Um, but look, I think if you're going to pick a sugar daddy, you should pick a fun one. And like, you know, it's only six months ahead of us hanging out, you know. The vaccine is coming. Good options. Vaccine's coming. Restaurants will be back open. Fingers crossed. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old female living on the East Coast. I just had a question about blowjobs. I have always wanted to be able to do that for my partner. Um, I enjoy receiving head, but I've never really been comfortable doing it in my technique. And it seems like my partners in the past haven't really enjoyed it. Just wondering if you have any suggestions or tips for that. I don't really suffer from dry mouth. It's kind of the opposite problem. I produce way too much saliva and just kind of gross. So any tips would be great. In the same way that I hope that you were getting blowjobs, even when I sent that shitty tweet, I hope you were giving blowjobs as well. Tim Miller, former spokesperson for the Republican National Committee, your (laughs) blowjob tips, please. Mom, please turn this off if you haven't already. <laughs> um, I guess my first thing would be to say that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says you can become an expert in anything with 10,000 hours of practice. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's one thing to consider. Uh, here's what I'd say. Uh, I think, uh, you know, she said that she doesn't have any problem with being wet enough. So uh, some people don't know this might be a remedial piece of advice, but uh Hands are just as important as mouth in a blowjob, you know? And so I think that, you know, taking, you know, after after you have the appropriate amount of lubricant, you know, spending a lot of time with the hands and then taking some breaths, that's good. That's maybe a good tip that might be helpful. I'd also think that, you know, communication is good. She says that these boys seem like they're not having a good time. That's weird. So maybe ask them why. Ask them which which parts are good and which parts aren't good. And I guess my final piece of advice is that I think that gay men can offer is that, you know, embrace it. Embrace it, right? Figure out what part of it uh, is fun for you because it is supposed to be fun. That's the whole deal. 
Yeah. Sometimes How'd I do, Dan? I, 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 that was actually great. I have very little to add. I, I just wanted, <laughs> I want to embellish the embrace it concept because I think that's really okay. important. As a gay guy, I've so often been in conversations like, you know, in a professional capacity, you know, doing Savage Love Lives, you know, doing the podcast, where women will say, I don't mind giving blowjobs, but I never want to feel like he's fucking my face. It's a dick. He's fucking your face with it. <laughs> that's what you're doing. If you're giving a blowjob to someone who isn't completely strapped down, they're fucking your face. If you're not down, with that the thought of having your face fucked doesn't turn you on you know this is why a lot of straight guys got on craigslist back in the day and looked for gay guys to suck their dicks because they wanted to get their dick sucked at some point in their lives by someone who is excited about sucking their dick was that a thing in your day yeah oh my god well i wasn't doing it because i find heterosexuality and men repulsive but i had a lot of friends who were getting on craigslist who were really into blowing these straight guys who had it in them, you know, that straight guy trade superpower to close their eyes and pretend it was a woman's mouth. Mouth is mouth, dude. They're not all closet cases. Some of them are capable of that <laughs> disassociation. Uh, but, I, but I could never do that. But like, That doesn't sound do- great to me either, but I do like the concept though. The, con- yeah. the, the broader point is correct. Like the enthusiasm, the gay men have embraced it. And, and but that's and what that's you were saying there. Em- em- embrace it. Embrace it. Like go to town, but, but you can embrace it without deep throating, you know, it's like choking up on a bat using your hands sometimes. Uh, and you're right. You know, a good blowjob is a relay race between mouth and hands. And hands. Hands are key. They are. And feedback. <laughs> and feedback. <laughs> Solicit that feedback. I had an uncle who was a, a rock star of sorts, uh, a regional rock star and had a lot of groupies and he loved to be bitten during when he got a blowjob he liked painful blowjobs and he was often in the position of him being the first guy a young groupie had ever given a blowjob to so he would always tell them this is how all guys like it do it like this all guys (laughs) like it like this and he would really get off on the idea that uh the guys who came after him (laughs) suffered i got nothing to add to that one that's that is not uh yeah that's not that's not a commonly held view okay so i want to end this by saying i'm sorry that my tweets were so mean it's amazing how high the stakes felt uh, in 2008, uh, in 2012. We had no idea how high they really were in 2016. When I was bagging on you for supporting Jeb, I thought Jeb was going to be the nominee. And we were still just, you know, dancing around normal Republican shitbaggery and awesome Democratic amazingness. I don't think all Democrats are amazing. And it, we were still engaged in the dance. Once it became Trump and and the stakes really became clear, particularly over the last four years. I feel a little bad about how I comported myself prior to Trump's nomination. So, Well, the only reason you should feel bad is because I spent every waking hour that I was not not taking the advice that you gave to people to not sleep with me, uh, trying to beat <laughs> Trump's ass beginning in 2015 up until 2020. So I feel like I'm accepting your approach your apology on the condition that I, I earned it. You did earn it. I tried and, to whip this guy's ass. And I know that there are some people on the left who want to poo-poo or, or minimize the contribution of the Never Trumpers, but I think you guys made a huge contribution in, in helping to bring Trump down, particularly when you consider, despite Biden's popular vote margin, seven, eight million, you consider how close it was in the Electoral College still. Yeah. Without the efforts of the Never Trumpers, Trump would have gotten a second term. Well, thanks, man. This has been so great. Uh, 2007 me is pinching himself. So this is super (laughs) cool. And uh, I hope that I, I comported myself okay.
You did. You did great. You give good sex advice. So nice. Maybe uh, once a year. I, I once a year I can give some sex advice on the side. So I don't like start my own never trumper sex podcast to try to take away from your market share. You don't yeah, want that. that's a, that is a problem there too. It's the the barrier to entry to giving sex advice on the internet is just too low. <laughs> yeah. to, to get a column in a newspaper thirty years ago, that was hard. Yeah. <laughs> there were gatekeepers then. Now, like, there's just too many. Com- if you start a sex advice podcast, then I'll have to send you mean tweets again. <laughs> All right. Well, invite me back once a year to, to give blowjob advice. And, uh, and I promise I won't start a, com- a competitor sex advice uh, pod. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 30-year-old gay male living in the Midwest and have a question about wet dreams. So since puberty, I've been getting wet dreams on a pretty consistent basis when I don't masturbate for a week or two. And that makes total sense to me. If I don't force the release, my body will do it after it's been pinned up too long. However, lately, I've been jerking off basically every day and having consistent sex with a partner of mine uh, at least once a week, and I'm still having wet dreams. I'm not necessarily concerned, but have talked with multiple friends about it around my age who say they haven't had a wet dream in five, ten, or more years. I was just calling to see if you uh, have any ideas as to what's happening. What's happening is that you are having wet dreams that is what's happening it's not common most people most men particularly outgrow the having of wet dreams a lot of men in adulthood will still have erotic dreams dirty dreams but rarely wet dreams that's a a a dream one has where one climaxes one ejaculates in one's sleep you are an outlier you're not a freak of nature. There are other people that this happens for, but it is rare. And I think rather than seeing that as a problem, you should see this as a superpower. You still got it, baby. You're still having wet dreams. Enjoy them. Might mean you need to do the sheets a little more often, wash the duvet covers a little more often than the average person. But hey, you get to have wet dreams still in your 30s. Good for you. Before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets at Mark Dundas Wood tweets. I could listen to Sarah Silverman all day. So thank you, Dan, for having her on the Savage Lovecast and giving us an extra share of her winning ways. As for the scripted versus sloppy communication mode dilemma, you and she handle both with ease. Thank you, Mark. We love Sarah, too. At Bardone 5 tweets, no, 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 at fake Dan Savage. Cargo shorts are not for everyone or anyone. Cargo shorts, not a hill I would die on or a garment I would die in. But I got to say, I have never quite understood how passionately some people hate cargo shorts. And finally, at BH tweets, LTR, 28-year-old female, 29-year-old male. I'm dying to get married, but boyfriend hasn't committed. Can I be all, hey, we are doing this damn thing or moving on? Hashtag Savage Lovecast. All right, that's more of a question for the Lovecast than a tweet about the Lovecast, but I will allow it. Marry me or get out. Not the most romantic proposal, but often an effective one. So you have my okay to go ahead and issue that ultimatum at Biatch. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, some feedback for the woman whose 14-year-old son asked to see his girlfriend's boobs. Something really important that I felt like you guys missed out on here. 
an important detail with this call is that the girlfriend had never mentioned, it doesn't seem like, that he ever tried to physically make inappropriate moves on her prior to this process of video chatting. So really the the main issue here is just him continuing to ask over and over again. However, we tell young men that asking for consent is incredibly important and that's something that is important that isn't discussed enough. So I think that the conversation should actually be centered more around, I'm really proud of you for asking for consent and it is okay for you to have these desires. However, moving forward, when you're becoming more sexual, it's incredibly important when you ask for consent to let the girl know that you are completely okay with her saying no and also that you will not continue to ask and that you will leave the ball in her court at that stage. So as you mentioned, we're not shaming him because that's something that can be extremely detrimental. It really fucked me up being shamed at that age. And we're also just taking this as a beautiful opportunity to have a discussion around what consent is and the fact that it's especially important with women because of the danger that they're put in and the pressure that gets put on them. Um, I'm sure she's got a great kid that just needs a little more help. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about that belly loving husband from last week's episode, that guy that really preferred his wife's belly to be bigger. I thought that you were super generous towards that guy, kind of looked at it through a kink filter, which was respectable. I totally had a different reaction. I kind of called bullshit on that guy. Two things really bothered me about that situation. First of all, Seemed like that husband could have been a little more considerate, interested, supportive of his wife's desire to be strong, healthy, and fit, especially after having a baby. So good on her for her health goals. And the second thing was that that woman really didn't have anything positive to say about that guy's behavior, which left me asking whether or not there really is anything positive about his behavior. And so I hope she's asking herself, Are there other areas where this guy is manipulative and controlling? Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old woman in the Midwest, leaving a comment about your conversation with Sarah Silverman about dating dynamics, mostly a comment about straight people. I wanted to point out that, in my experience, the reason that male comics won't specifically date female comedians is because they are incredibly intimidated by women who might be Uh, as funny, or God forbid, funnier than them. All right, we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Tickets are on sale now for Hump 2021. We've got a brand spanking new collection of short, dirty films that we're excited to share with you. We can't get together to enjoy Hump in theaters this year like we usually do, so we're doing it online. We're streaming Hump, and there's a variety of viewing parties to join. We've got one with Hump filmmakers. We've got an all-nude viewing party and a fully clothed viewing party with me on opening night. Go to HumpFilmFest.com to look at the variety of dates, times, and viewing parties and get your tickets And there's still time to make a film for this year's festival. The deadline for submissions is January 8th. It's coming right up. But making a film for Hump is a great way to ring in the new year without jinxing it. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out how to make a film and earn some cash. humpfilmfest.com slash submit. 
Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Tim Miller on Twitter at TimODC. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading